Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. All right, guys, welcome back to part two of Pop Psychology Collection, where we have been talking about ADHD. I've never actually done this before. I'm a bit excited about being with you guys twice, dropping two episodes back to back. But there was just so much to talk about when it comes to this topic of ADHD that I couldn't put it in one episode. So make sure you you really have to have the context of part one. So go and listen to part one and then come back here to part two. So in part one, we really unpacked, first of all, what pop psychology is. So you need to listen to that. But then um, we unpacked a little bit about ADHD and I talked uh, a lot about my experience as a teacher and different things that I've observed. And then we talked a little bit about some of the uh, clinical psychologists who are starting to become concerned about the mass labeling of ADHD. And of course, we ended up with a scripture where uh, you know, God's will is for us to prosper concerning all things and to be in good health. So while there's definitely, and as I explained in my experience, there is definitely, uh, are definitely people who struggle with genuine um, behaviors associated with ADHD, there has been this massive rise in the amount of people being labeled and medicated, not just in Australia, but in other Western countries. I think America is the most um, diagnosed with ADHD, but I tell you what, I think we're coming in a close second. So today I want to look at how it's diagnosed. We're going to have a look at the test that's used. Um, and then we're going to look at the medications and then I want to finish it off with, uh, some suggestions on what we can do. So I want to get really kind of practical in today's episode. Um, but let me refer again to these clinical psychologists I've been listening to. I'll tell you at the end, uh, these, more like where I've been getting some of the information from, the people I've been listening to, so that you can go and check these people out also. Um, but these guys have been asking questions uh, around the labels uh, of or the labeling of ADHD and, of course, the medication. So one of the guys is called Dr. Roger McFillan. And I was listening to him on a podcast. Now, bear with me because I'm going to quote him. Okay, this is not my quote, this is his quote. Now, he, he does this to try and shock people, and he definitely achieves that. But this is how he often will start off. He says, there's no such thing as ADHD. Mic drop, right? It's like, what? When I heard him say it on a podcast, I was like, what the heck? But I know people with it. I've sent students to pediatricians because I have suspicions. Um, I live with Cameron, right? Who I talked about in the last episode, who on a regular basis were like, oh man, if you were a kid today, I don't know how many times we've said that. I've said that to him. So I was like, what can he mean? But he says, bear with him when he says this. Now he does not mean that someone might not struggle with focus or deviate from the norm. But what his point is when he says there's no such thing as ADHD, what he means is, and of course it's clickbait, he means it's not a discrete medical illness. And this part, this is true. There is no blood test that can tell you if you have it. There's no MRI. There's no throat swab. There's no brain scans, even though, by the way, and I know someone's going to come along and go, they've scanned the brains of people with ADHD. 
And you can find this if you do a quick Google search. It does say or claim that the prefrontal cortex is smaller, I think it is, on people with ADHD, right? But again, guys, don't just look at the first line of Google. Click on those articles and look a little bit further because guess what you'll see? You will see if you read further that they will admit it's guesswork and they haven't come to any conclusion and they're just hypothesizing. And if it were true that they could diagnose ADHD by a brain scan, by checking brain size, then that's what they would do with everyone. They'd be like, no problem, let's scan scan their brains and see if their prefrontal cortex is smaller. But they don't because they can't, because they don't really know. They're guessing and it's not true for all people they scan. So there are actually no biological markers and no defining abnormality or no measure of brain activity and no brain scan that can show any abnormality in the brain of a supposed ADHD person. So they're considering it's not a medical diagnosis and these are the clinician's uh, concerns and yet we're giving medication to alter the brain. And so I thought that was a good point that he said there. So really his point is, it's a whole lot of guesswork. And ADHD, according to to these clinicians, it's not a condition that someone has like a flu or strep throat. It's a descriptor. Uh, He calls it a constellation of symptoms, a list of behavior traits and challenges related to attention and hyperactivity that might need clinical attention. But again, these labels should be used very sparingly and only as a last resort if the pediatrician or psychologist cannot come to a conclusion about a diagnosis, like if they don't fit into any other disorder. It should be a last-ditch effort to explain behaviors that brought them to their clinic. And so his point is, like I said in the last episode, it's a condition like gastro, but you need to find what the root cause is. So it was understood by earlier clinicians, so the ones that, you know, were around back when I was first teaching, they understood that, look, human behavior exists within a spectrum, right? There is a wide range of differences in attention and focus. So someone like Cameron finds it way harder to focus, depending on what it is, by the way, because how funny, he actually focuses a lot when it comes to a screen, right? But he can't focus if he has to read something like tick box, right? But that's what I mean. So whereas me, I can, I won't be on the phone for long, but I can focus for days on like a book. So there's a wide range of just human, what makes us human. And so these diagnoses should only be reserved for those who have really significant challenges, like they really can't function. Now, of course, Historically, this has been reserved mostly for young boys, right, with behavioral challenges. But even back then, before they would give a diagnosis, they would ask ethical questions that we are not asking around diagnoses today. The ethics have literally gone out the window. The ethics went out as TikTok came in. They used to ask things like, okay, are we suggesting that these boys have a disorder with biological origins that hinder their ability to learn to self-regulate, complete tasks, manage impulses, and focus. Is that what we're, we're trying to do here? Are we suggesting they've got a biological disorder? Um, they asked questions like, okay, is this disorder limiting their potential? 
Is this a lifelong condition that needs to be treated? Or is this part of a normal spectrum of human behavior? And can we find alternate pathways to helping this child? They are all ethical questions that we don't ask anymore. So what started as a temporary diagnosis, while they explored legitimate factors contributing to these behavioral problems, has now become this widespread disease that needs medication. They don't look into or address the root causes now, but back then they did. They would look at things like, does this child have neglect in the home? Are there parental concerns? Is there trauma? Is there an underlying medical illness? Is there a nutrient deficiency? Do they have a learning disability? Is there a lack of structure and discipline in their life? Now, I am, I remember a few years ago um, when one of my children had a, um, I'll tell you the short version of this story, but they had a terrible illness where they were having headaches, like they were incapacitating headaches. um, And it came from off the back of like a flu. And this went on for about, uh, for a whole term at school. So this child missed almost a whole term at school. Now they could see from his blood markers that he had had some sort of post-viral syndrome, but they didn't know what it was. So we took him to a pediatrician And I'm telling you, and this is why I'm probably so aware of this stuff, that pediatrician did not ask me one question about my child's lifestyle. They didn't ask me, has anything happened recently? They didn't ask me what this child's diet was. They didn't ask me anything like what was his activity, but they did say to me, because I said, look, is he, is he maybe faking it? I didn't think he was because I knew my kid, but I'm like, could this child of mine be faking it? And the pediatrician was like, absolutely not. I can tell by looking at this child, they were pale, they were listless, their blood markers showed that something was not right. And do you know what they did to my child? They medicated him. Okay. It's one of my boys. They medicated him. Do you know what they gave him to try and help with the headaches? They gave him the same medication they would give um, someone who has epilepsy. And I watched his personality literally change. He became so dumbed down. I was beside myself. I remember crying. Now they also did scans because they were like, does he have a brain tumor? I ended up in tears so many times. And I said to Cameron, something's not right. They are not asking any questions. They're just like, yeah, he's got something. Let's whack him on this medication. The reason they did that was to try and block the headaches. I knew that something was not right. And so I sought alternative methods and ways of um, working out what it was. And I don't want to go into it here, but we did. We worked it out. I found an alternative um, method that fixed him in a couple of visits. And I weaned him myself off the medication and we've never had a problem since. And that's why I'm so aware at how sometimes, uh, oftentimes pediatricians are not anymore looking at these root causes that they used to look at once upon a time. So what we have now is uh, ADHD is something that is casually diagnosed and aggressively medicated. Let me say that again. It is casually diagnosed and aggressively medicated. What does that mean, casually diagnosed? Well, this is a term that um, Psych Watch Australia, who also, that's a good website to look at. They've got concerns around all of the mass diagnosis. Let me quote from their website. There are no objective scientific diagnostic tests. This is Psych Watch Australia. The diagnosis is based on reports, usually from teachers and parents, that a child often exhibits impulsive, inattentive behaviors like fidgeting, forgetting, and interrupting. And so that's what it means, right? It's just casually diagnosed. There's no biological markers, no technological tests. There's just a behavioral criteria list produced 
by the way, by the American and Australia's Got One Psychiatric Association. All you need is a third party to say that a child has these for a doctor to diagnose him. That's what we mean by casual. So there's no real um, stringent testing here. It's just literally a questionnaire. And I'll go through it with you in just a second. And then we aggressively medicate them by putting them, and we're going to talk about the medication in just a moment. But let's have a look at some of the criteria that teachers and parents are having to, um, to fill in. Now, it's too long for me to read all of it, but it's called a DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. And the child has to like display a certain number of these, like six of the behavioral ones, six of the behavior part two, and like it just, you can look it up yourself, okay? The DSM-5, the ADHD diagnostic criteria. So you're t- talking about things like this. Um, they often fail to give close attention to details or make careless mistakes in schoolwork. That's like half my class. They often have difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities. Again, half my class, especially with preps. They often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. They often do not follow through on instructions and fail to finish schoolwork, chores, or duties in the workplace. Again, that's my own kids half the time. Uh, Difficulty organizing tasks, avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort. Who likes doing things they don't enjoy, right? Like I've got great effort for English, but maths, man, I would switch off. Uh, Often loses things necessary for tasks. Um, Let's go down to part two, the hyperactivity and impulsivity. Often fidgets with hands or feet or squirms in a seat. Well, one of my kids used to do that all the time often leaves the seat in the classroom or other situations. That is Cameron. He would do that. The teacher tried to tie him to his chair, guys. Often runs about or climbs excessively in situations in which it's inappropriate. Um, Have a look at any three-year-old boy. Often unable to play or engage in leisure activities quietly. Oh, my days. Are you kidding me? Georgia was always quiet. My boys were always noisy. Is often on the go. Um, isn't that most kids talks excessively? One of my kids talks excessively, blurts out some answers before questions have been completed. Again, half my class. So there's, there's more to it. You guys can look that up yourself. But the other thing is too, that, um, we have to, you have to like put this on a scale, like, you know, if it's often, then, then how often something else, this website said, you're going to laugh at this, but I have to agree, is this Psychwatch Australia said bad teachers can actually cause ADHD type behaviors and then be the first ones to suggest a child has ADHD and then provide the evidence for it. I literally want to do a standing ovation right there. Bad teachers can cause ADHD type behaviors. That is so true. You get a boring teacher or a teacher who is not structured, they're not in control, you're, and, and they, they don't have any um, authority in their classroom, or they just like sit there and talk at the kids all day, I'd have ADHD too. So there's just, there's just so much more to the criteria. There's one thing that this doesn't allow for is like, what is the context of the situation? I mean, what if, I, I wish we could do, uh, that the kid could do a questionnaire on the teacher that they've got. Like maybe that would help to explain some of the situations that we've got happening. 
So if we take cases off the table where there are severe and genuine behavioral challenges, right, are the rest of the children displaying normal childhood behaviors, like especially boys who are athletic, energetic, and want to move and play? Like that's literally Cameron's story. I've had so many mums reach out to me on Instagram that are like, Renee, my kid was fine in kindy and all of a sudden my the teacher of my preppy is wanting my child to, is saying that there's something wrong, that my child's wanting to be diagnosed with whatever, with ADHD. And I always say to the parent, what was the kindy like? And without fail, the kindy was like, you know, a kindy where the kids moved around a lot or they would sing a lot and they would do lots of activity. And then you're getting this child to sit in this four walls where they have to be still. So let's have a look at Jordan Peterson. I love Jordan Peterson's perspective. Have a listen to this reel that he put out a little while ago. He used amphetamines to conveniently modify the behavior of bored boys because we're too stupid to construct our education systems in a manner that doesn't drive them mad. Yeah. Hyperactivity is an iatrogenic disease created by schools. Yeah, that's that's the case. So, boys should play more, way more than they do, way more. They should play to the point of exhaustion in some sense every day. Really, really. They'll quit when they've had enough. I bet your hyperactive son has no trouble paying attention when he's playing video games. Well, that's worth thinking about, isn't it? I literally tear up every time I watch that. I'm going to post that for you guys so you can see because there's some beautiful footage to go with that of boys outdoor playing. One of them's on a horse, one of them's like in a creek, and I just couldn't agree more. He is literally, uh, what Jordan Peterson is saying is we're creating this with the environment that we are putting our boys in. And that kids, boys in particular, need to play to the point of exhaustion. And I really couldn't agree more with that. That's what my boys used to do. I used to, when they would come home from school, I would put them outside, like we'd have a snack. Um, They didn't do their homework straight away. As long as they did it before bed, they would go out and they would just play. They would climb trees. I mean, I've got footage of them. They'd grab big sticks and have sword fights and all sorts of stuff. Um, And so... Jordan Peterson's got a few reels about this, uh, but I just love it. He's like, we are creating this. And um, that's what I was talking about before with with bad teachers, but it's not just teachers. It's the actual environment, just the school environment we're putting them in. Now, more experts are definitely shaking the can. Again, Psych Watch Australia says that arguably a diagnosis of ADHD says more about the adults in a child's life. Um, so parents, teachers, and doctors, than it does about the child. And uh, that's because it really does depend on their attitude. So if you were a little boy with a lot of energy that was a bit hyperactive in my class, I would not have sent that child um, unless I could really see. And like I said, it is rare. It is rare that there's a an issue that uh, hardcore that they need to be sent uh, somewhere for diagnosis. And so you know, could there be other factors that are contributing to these behaviors? And one, of course, is environment. And and maybe the answer is not to diagnose and label and medicate, but to look at the other possible reasons and address these. 
Or are we happy to keep placing labels on mass on a generation to give them excuses really for the future on why they can't keep down a job or finish a degree or organize their personal lives or even one day have a successful relationship or marriage or parent properly themselves? So let's have a look at some of these other factors or root causes, because I think it's important to acknowledge them. And diet is the first one that comes to mind. You know, we're raising kids who are being fed bad foods full of sugars that are nutrient deficient and chemical laden with pesticides. Uh, And then we're, you know, filling their lunchboxes with, with just stuff that's not whole nutritious food. Like I said before, there's already a link between um, celiac disease, which is a gluten intolerance and hyperactivity. What about technology, screens? You know, we're putting them in front of screens from a young age, right when their brains are developing. And we know how much screens have affected and minimized even adults' ability to focus. So imagine what it is doing to a developing child's brain. What about parenting? Ask any teacher. Guys, I'm telling you right now, as a teacher, from the child's behavior in the classroom, I can definitely, we can all tell the difference from one parenting style to another. There are a lot of parents who are not taking charge. They don't know how to parent. There is little to no discipline and structure and routine. I've had children uh, over the years, in later years, who were labeled with ADHD, but the parents were awesome. They took charge, they'd set up a routine and a structure, and these kids do so much better than the children who come from chaotic homes. So we've got these children that are entering the school system already with behavior problems, but we are just, you know, giving them a drug. Now, there are many other factors. Again, according to Psychwatch Australia, they said there can be factors such as gender because boys are more likely to have ADHD. The ethnicity of a student can um, can also inc- uh, be associated with an increase of ADHD, as can, now this is interesting, but low maternal education, uh, lone parenting, and the receipt of social welfare. That's been associated with an increased risk of ADHD, sexual abuse, sleep deprivation, perinatal issues, so uh, issues with the child when they're in the womb, artificial food additives, mobile phone use, postcodes, so where people live. Um, These are all associated with an increased risk, according to Psychwatch Australia. Now, despite all of this and a lack of supporting evidence, It's widely assumed that the child has this neurodevelopmental disorder caused by a faulty brain function, even though nobody can measure that brain function and there is zero clinical evidence. And the diagnosis, as we've established, is coming from observation and a checklist of behaviors. So let's look at the medication that, that we are putting our children on. Now, It's important, I think, to look at how they first started. I mean, does anyone ever do this research? How did they first start medicating children? It's important to know the background. There was a guy called Charles Bradley who worked with troubled children. Now, we tend to gloss over how this all started, but if you look him up, Charles Bradley, he used to employ this technique because he decided he wanted to study the brain of these troubled children. So it's really brutal what he did. He employed a technique called pneumocephalography. And this is how he studied the brains of children. He would strap them into a rotating chair after a painful lumbar puncture where he would inject a quantity of air into their spinal fluid. 
He would then get the chair to rotate at various positions to displace the uh, the spinal fluid injected with air so that he could get a better contrast with x-ray of their brain. Now, after this procedure, when he captured the images, these poor kids were left for weeks with splitting headaches, dizziness, vertigo, nauseousness, amongst other things, right? It would take about two two or so weeks for the spinal fluid to be regenerated. Now, he was concerned about the misery he was causing uh, children. Not enough to stop doing this, by the way. So he started giving them this newly released drug called amphetamine. He's like, I'm going to give them some amphetamine, see if I can help them to relieve their symptoms after this procedure. But what he noticed instead was that this medication made these troubled boys um, subdued and calm and focused. So suddenly, for the first time ever, we had this connection that medication could help these troubled children to calm them down. And so that's where this medication began. It's not very good background, is it? Fast forward a few decades later, and we're medicating large numbers of children more than at any time in history. Now, adults are saying that it's effective because of this study that was done called an MTA study, which is by far the largest and longest study RAM. It only had, by the way, 579 children in it. Now, they were randomly assigned. So they had children that had medication, children that had medication and therapy, children who were just given therapy, and then children who were given none at all, but just uh, usual community care. They followed them up for 14 months and then they checked in on them eight years later and they discovered that there was no difference between any groups, that the medication had no effect whatsoever on ADHD, on ODD, anxiety, depression. It had no effect on reading skills, maths, grade retention, and the list went on and on. There was, however, one long-term effect. Guess what it was? The children that were medicated had their growth stunted. Now, the doctor that was majorly involved in this study, by the end of his life, he regretted it. And he actually was quoted as saying that the skyrocketing rates of ADHD is a national disaster of dangerous proportions. So that's the doctor that was involved in the study. Now, what are these meds that we're giving them? They're called stimulants. Now, in America, you'll hear about Adderall. Uh, A lot of university students are actually sourcing and taking Adderall to help them focus in university. Uh, Adderall is not allowed here in Australia, but we have very similar medications, two types, one of course being the amphetamine and one being a methylphenidate. Now these can last anywhere from six to eight hours, some are quick release, some are slow release, and they come under a list of medications known as stimulants or psychotropics. Do you have any clue what these medications are or what they do or how they work? Do you know what the short-term or long-term effects are? But the concerning thing is a psychotropic is any drug that's capable of affecting the mind, the emotions, and the behavior. So we're talking Ritalin, uh, you know, antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, and then all stimulants come under the psychotropic banner. So in the case of ADHD, where they've got no clinical evidence for how the neurotransmitters are affected, yet they are still medicating with a medication that is going to affect these neurotransmitters. They increase the level of dopamine in the brain. It does not fix the child. It merely suppresses them, masks the behavior. Now, the concerning thing, it gets worse. These meds are addictive. They are addictive. 
Even the slow release ones are addictive. Now, people with ADHD symptoms already have an increased propensity to be addicted to substances, right? But then what they do is they're treating them with medication that is addictive. It just it just blows your mind. The thing is, if you look it up and you go, oh, you know, is ADHD medication bad because, you know, it's addictive, you'll see experts claiming, oh, no, the opposite is true. Giving them addictive meds helps their vulnerability towards addiction. Now, anyone with any common sense would understand that that is a really backwards, upside down statement. It just makes no sense whatsoever. In what world do we give anyone that's got an addiction problem, in what world do we give them something else that's addictive to help them overcome that addiction? It's just ridiculous. Like think of an alcoholic, right? You don't give an alcoholic who's addicted to alcohol something else that's addictive to fix their addictive nature. It's ridiculous. Like the fact that people believe that absolute crap, which is what it is, just blows my mind. So the other point about this is, well, if the meds are not addictive, because they hate it when you say that these meds are addictive, if they're not addictive, then why does the American Academy of Family Physicians recommend that people with previous opioid addictions shouldn't take these stimulants? I thought taking them was meant to help their addiction, right? But yet if you've got an opioid addiction, which is massive in America, go and watch Painkillers on Netflix. That's an interesting one. Now, again, a lot of the advice for kids or teenagers or adults that are on this medication, they're told that if they're going to come off it, not to go cold turkey, but to taper off slowly. Uh, Why? Well, because if you stop the meds, you're going to have withdrawal symptoms. They call it a crash. You only have withdrawal symptoms from something that's addictive. It is also recommended that children take drug holidays. In other words, that they come off their meds during school holidays or weekends. Why? Good question. This leads us into the side effects. They, they say that it's good for kids to take a break because of the side effects. Well, what are the side effects? Well, for starters, I already said that it stunts their growth. But hey, guys, that doesn't matter because guess what? According to the internet experts, if you come off the medication, your growth catches up. I'm sorry, but I'm just not okay with that. It's like, okay, so at what point, but if you've got ADD, right, when are you going to come off your meds? Like, so people that are on ADHD medication are on it for life. So at what point are you meant to come off it so that you can finish growing, So that's just, again, this just makes no sense. Now, another thing that's really concerning, and I talked about this in the last episode, is it suppresses their appetite, right? Which is probably why they're not growing as well, because they're not getting nutrients. So they're saying, well, a break is good. Why? Because, oh, then your child will want to eat again. So here's where I'm hearing that our young girls are susceptible to eating disorders, right? So their appetite's being suppressed. They start losing weight. They're given compliments. They already feel like they're not fitting in. And so it's this like, you know, never ending circle, this cyclic circle. So then they're very, very vulnerable to getting an eating disorder. The other thing, other side effects, they cause sleep disruption, headaches. They can give children or adults a dry mouth, upset stomachs irritability and mood changes. Now they're just the short-term effects. 
they're still looking into the long-term effects. Now, I just did a really quick Google search. And again, it's so funny how they're trying to mask the truth on some of this, but you don't have to go too far to find that there are a lot of long-term effects that they're still looking into. Here's a list of them. Heart disease, high blood pressure, seizures, irregular heartbeats, abuse and addiction. We just talked about that. Skin discoloration. The other point about medication is they do start to work less well over time. Their bodies get used to them. So it's suggested that they have their dose adjusted. I'm pretty sure that's code for take more. They might have to have their dose upped. Now, another article I found says, and I quote, studies have shown ADHD medications are safe to take long-term. Well, my question would be, if that's the case, who did those studies How many people were in those studies? Who funded the studies? Because I'm seeing other experts saying the opposite, that they do have long-term effects. So whenever you do research on these things, you need to look into the background of who is doing the studies, who's paying for it, who's benefiting. Um, What about the fact that ADHD now very rarely stands alone? Jordan Peterson talks about this too. Uh, Now, I've studied this as well. Of course, being a teacher, I've looked into this. ADHD is just one part of the spectrum. It's like one circle that overlaps with a whole bunch of other things. So children that have ADHD, it usually doesn't stop there. There's often anxiety involved, autism, OCD, ODD, which is oppositional defiance disorder. That one really gets me. So there are concerns that a diagnosis of ADHD becomes a gateway then to a flood of other mental health diagnoses and more medications. So kids on ADHD have a much higher chance of being medicated for other mental health conditions. In fact, more than two thirds of individuals with ADHD have at least one other coexisting condition. Listen to that again. More than two thirds of individuals with ADHD have at least one other. So now we're not talking one label, we're talking two labels and maybe more with all the meds that go with it. Now, parents are often told, put your child on this because it's the only way to improve their long-term academic outcomes. And of course, parents are worried about that, but is this true? But it turns out that those with ADHD who are not medicated outperform those who are medicated long-term. So here we have this constellation of symptoms that Dr. Roger McFillan was talking about being misapplied to more and more people, driving high rates of drug use. So obviously there's, you know, a lot of people are concerned here. More and more clinicians are concerned. More and more teachers are starting to get concerned. So let's make some conclusions here and some uh, some alternate ways that maybe we could look at this and approach this. So yes, the common ground here is that we can all see that there are certain children or even adults who have a set of behaviors or symptoms. But this is the thing, and I really think this is important. Do you know that attention and focus is something that can be strengthened? It's like a muscle. It's not something that you're born with that stays static the rest of your life, right? Like you are born with your eye color. You can't change that. You know, you might be born with certain characteristics. I've been born with um, very pale skin. Well, I could change that, I guess, if I go and get a fake tan. But attention is something, it's not like you're born with it. You're given a certain measure and that's it. It's actually more like a muscle. It's something that can be worked on and strengthened like any area of your personality. Again, I'm not talking the severe cases, okay, which I 
I want to acknowledge there definitely are the severe cases that need some sort of intervention, but only after all other root causes have been looked at. I'm talking about the people that are just en masse diagnosing themselves or diagnosing children. I think at the very least, the diagnosis of ADHD needs to go back to being used very sparingly and only after, like I said, underlying causes are being looked at. I think overdiagnosis needs to stop immediately. It is causing more harm. Adults need to stop self-diagnosing themselves and the children around them. I think we need to take meds off the table immediately, except in extreme cases and look for alternate pathways forward, which is a big part of what Jordan Peterson talks about as well. Are we missing things that we can be looking at? Is there a way that we can help parents? Is there other pathways like parenting? Do we need to help to give them skills on how to have a more disciplined home? Like I said, as a teacher, I've seen massive differences with children that come from disciplined homes. What we are lacking in society is the authority of adults. Adults in children's lives need to be persistent and consistent. They need to bring charge, set the rules and bring discipline and structure. That is going to help a lot of these children. What about the environment being the problem? Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this. Right, their natural brain activity is not wired to be sitting in the classroom. We've got systems that only support kids that learn in one certain way and have one kind of personality. I think some parents need to take their kids and maybe out of school and look at homeschooling or find alternate ways, like with my boys, one in particular who really needed to be active. I would advocate for him with every teacher that he had every year, and we found different things that really helped him, and then we enrolled him in sport, and then when he came home, I would help him with his homework so he could get through it quicker, and I let him spend a lot of time outside. What about looking at their diet? Look in your kid's lunchbox. What are you feeding them from breakfast through to lunch through to dinner? What snacks are we giving them? Is the food nutrition full of nutrients for them? And I think we need to look at, instead of medicating poor behavior, finding strategies that work, take a cooperative approach between the adults in the children's lives. What about screens? Take screens away. Take video games away. Um, I don't know if I played it before, but Jordan Peterson said, isn't it funny how children, they don't, boys with ADHD don't need to be told to concentrate on a video screen. That goes to show, right? Take those screens away. Teach our kids to sit and tolerate a lack of stimulation. So the reason they can sit through video games, it's so entertaining for them. If they literally had no control over their behavior, then they wouldn't be able to sit still in through a video game. Teach them the value in being bored. So my final say on this is that our ability to focus is recoverable. And that is backed up time and time again by clinicians who are concerned about the mass diagnosis. They say that our ability to focus, it is recoverable. Our brain has just learned to adapt to all the novel stimuli around us. So we need to start removing the stimuli. If we believe we can't focus and we identify ourselves to have an impairment, then this becomes our experience. And if we tell children that that they have something wrong with them and that, oh, well, you can't do this and you can't do this because of your ADD, then they're going to believe that. Let's optimize their potential. Let's help them work on themselves just like we do, just like Cameron has done. 
You know, we've got no idea what the long-term effect is on their on their brain. So let's start looking at the proper information and asking for the proper information and asking questions incessantly until we get the proper answers. And even when they give you answers, research those answers yourself. It is so concerning that, you know, these these medications are having a, a negative effect on our children. But I think what's happening too is we have to get really honest with ourselves. And I think sometimes we would rather a biological reason to protect us from having to look at our parenting or to look at the environment we're providing for children. So we need to stop overestimating the benefits of medication and underestimating the harms. We need to look at all of this honestly and seriously. So here's a bunch, if you want to do more research, I'm going to give you a couple of things that you can look at. There's a book called Obedience Pills, a really good book that you can get on Amazon. Um, On Netflix, there's a a show that just came out called Take Your Pills. It's more to do with Adderall um, in America, but it's still a stimulant that works in a similar way to the medication here in Australia. That also gives the background, which might open your eyes and give you a bit bit of information. And then I highly, highly recommend a podcast called Radically Genuine. Now, this is a podcast by a clinical psychologist I mentioned before, Dr. Roger McFillan. He's also a really good one to follow on Twitter. So um, I would highly suggest that you look at all of those resources. And if you've got any questions or I've tried to give you the links and the websites of where I've looked, um, but if you want any more, then jump in my DMs and let me know. So there you go. There is our two-part series. It was a lot longer today, but um, I know for those of you that are interested. So I really think that we can turn this around, but the only way, guess what? The only way to turn it around is if you and I start saying no. No to the diagnosis, no to the medication, start talking to our teachers. Teachers need to start turning this around. Um, And we really need to do it for the sake of our children. Our children, oh my gosh, they need us. They need us to find better ways for them. Otherwise, we are going to have a generation completely addicted and everyone's going to be labeled. That is not going to happen on my watch. Guys, I love you. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for listening to two episodes. You are amazing. I can't wait to be back with you next week as we continue our pop psychology collection. Until then, have a good one. Bye.